Elaine Petro. And I'm Mason Peck. This is Spaceflight Mechanics, the Cornell Space Tech Podcast. Hey, Mason, there's something I've been wanting to ask you. After all these years you've spent working on space technology, do you think there's really something fundamentally different about designing a system that will operate in space rather than on Earth? Well, I guess design is always about meeting requirements. We establish those to ensure that a system will operate as desired under anticipated operating conditions and with some contingency or margin. So I don't know if the general problem of designing a spacecraft is fundamentally different from other systems, but those specific design requirements clearly are unique. Well, that's a fair and wise response. So maybe as a follow-up question, I'm curious, what would you say are the unique requirements that space introduces in the design process? In space, it seems to, I think, a person without too much background in this, that it's cold, right? You've heard of the cold of space. It's kind of true in the sense that there is not air around to warm you up. But in the sun, a spacecraft can get very hot. It's hotter in that sense than any desert you can think of uh, on Earth. And as soon as a spacecraft goes behind something like the Earth or the moon, it's in shadow or we say eclipse, whenever that happens, there's nothing else shining on the spacecraft, maybe a little bit of Earth shine or infrared radiation from the Earth, but a spacecraft can get very cold very quickly. So the extremes of temperature are a huge deal for space. And the speed with which things get hot and cold is also a little bit unusual. Those challenges really do make a difference for how spacecraft can be designed successfully or maybe can fail. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think we have to think about not only the environmental sources of heat or cold on the spacecraft, but also internal sources. So, you know, in another episode, we interviewed Professor John Foster and He talks about the challenge of getting rid of excess heat from a power plant in space. So on Earth, for example, we use water as a coolant and we release that hot water into rivers or other bodies of water in space. You don't have that same luxury, especially for a free-floating spacecraft. So I can see that this is really a key challenge in the design of a spacecraft. So spacecraft near the inner planets warms up thanks to the sun. A spacecraft in the outer planets, so we're talking about Jupiter and beyond, that gets very cold. There may be some way to exploit those features for better design, but it all seems pretty complicated to me. I think we need the help of an expert. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's talk to Sadaf Sopani, who is a professor in our department and is working on just this area. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what you work on? Sure. So in the context of space flight mechanics, I work on spacecraft thermal management. Specifically, we're doing both materials and fluids research to enable some new technologies and innovations that can help us tackle some of the thermal challenges associated with future spacecraft missions. Well, what are some of those challenges? What are some of the harder challenges to overcome in thermal management for spacecraft? So this really depends, I think, on what the spacecraft has to do. So typically the thermal requirements are going to come down from the other requirements of the mission, right? So there are certain sensors, like if we talk about the James Webb Space Telescope, there's sensors and cameras that have certain functionality. So if you have a camera like you do on the James Webb that, you know, operates really low temperatures next to some electronics that's generating a lot of heat, then the most challenging thing is separating the two. 
Other times, if you're talking about low Earth orbit or, you know, constant fluctuations in hot and cold, then that really becomes the main challenge is trying to equilibrate that since typically electronics like to be somewhere around room temperature. They don't like to be really cold or really hot. Deep space missions, it's just the lack of heat that can be a problem. So it, it really depends. And that's the challenge of being a spacecraft thermal engineer is it's mission specific, but there's a suite of technologies that have been pretty matured over the years that you can choose from to try to meet those needs. Can you give us an overview of some of those technologies? I mean, the first that comes to mind probably for everyone is a radiator. <laughs> That's um, what we call passive spacecraft thermal control. Well, why is it passive? So the difference between passive and active is pretty you know, intuitive. Passive systems don't require an input of energy or power supply. They are going to work that way just because that's their nature. So for a radiator that has a certain emissivity, it's its nature to emit at the temperature that it's at. So as long as we can get the heat to the radiator, it's going to get rid of that with some T to the fourth dependence. So the temperature of the fourth power. Exactly. So that kind of dictates its efficiency, how hot it gets and how cold the environment is that it's radiating to. So when you say get the heat to the radiator, I guess in a passive system this would happen through some sort of thermally conductive material, like a copper strap or something like that, huh? Yeah, exactly. So that becomes really the main challenge with the spacecraft thermal control design. How do we move the heat from where it's generated to where it needs to go, which is always the radiator? There's no conductive or convective way of getting rid of heat when you're in space. There's no molecules to help you support those heat transfer modes. So radiative cooling is our only approach for actually rejecting the heat completely off the spacecraft. But moving it from the source to the radiator, there's lots of different ways to do that. One of them is like a copper strap, so really high thermally conductive materials that are thermally connected to some electronic component that's generating the heat and moving that over to the radiator. Other passive systems could be heat pipes. So again, if passive systems just like to work that way because that's their nature, so heat pipes are designed to move heat just using capillary flow. So you don't need an external pump that's powered by anything, but rather the fluid that's in these heat pipes is transported via capillary action. So the design of the wick structure inside the heat pipe, that's kind of the critical parameter. Also the fluids chosen for the heat pipes, but these systems are actually really cool because they have order of magnitude higher conductivity than that same heat pipe material if it were a solid rod. So like a solid copper rod versus a copper heat pipe would have vastly different effective conductivities. And they're both passive, which is really great because you don't have to worry about any input of energy or anything going wrong with the pump or the power supply. Could you just explain that capillary effect? This capillary action is the process by which the working fluid inside the heat pipe is transported from what's called the condenser to the evaporator side. So one side is rejecting heat, so moving it to the radiator. So the liquid inside has to change phase. And so that phase change process is what's driving the flow inside the wick. You know, if you think about like a straw sitting in, in a cup, the water inside rises up a little bit because that straw has a certain diameter, though the water molecules inside like to adhere to the side walls of that straw. It's not a very dramatic effect unless you have a really 
narrow straw. So that ratio of the diameter and how much wall surface area there is to the mass of the liquid matters. In heat pipes, we leverage that tendency of liquids to try to adhere to the walls and push themselves forward, kind of overcome their cohesive forces and bond instead to the material, to the solid. So we have these really small pores, whether it's like a sintered wick or it's a grooved wick structure. At the end of the day, that physical process is what allows the liquid to go from the condenser evaporator and move around in the heat pipe passively. So that passive behavior, that's essential because you want to reduce the risk, I guess, in a spacecraft of moving parts and uh, complicated mechanisms and electronics and so forth. So you exploit the physics exactly. to do what you want to do. Yeah. In the process, I would think that the molecules, the, the fluid, they're extracting energy from somewhere to perform these tasks. I mean, in the case of a, a straw, if I put a really narrow straw in a cup and that fluid level rises, there's work being done. There's energy coming from somewhere. Where is it coming from? Where is it going to? I mean, it's going to the motion, I guess, but where is it coming from? Yeah, so, I mean, in, in that context, you have gravity, right, working against you. So as this water level rises, it has more and more potential energy. In terms of, you know, where it's coming from, I would think of it as the adhesive forces that mm -hmm. are kind of driving that process. And so that's sort of inherent in the molecules. The molecules that have this free surface are open to kind of bonding to something else, whereas like the molecules that are deep inside of the fluid have an equilibrium around and they have the cohesive bonds. So it's, you know, that interface between the liquid and the solid is sort of where that energy comes from. And is it true that you need this energy equilibrium? Like if you're trying to move heat off the spacecraft, like you have the same energy going through your pipe as is going out your radiator as it's coming into the pipe? So I think that's where like a lot of the design comes in. So it depends what temperature the component should be at. And that dictates the type of fluid that will even go in the heat pipe. So then, you know, the next step after that is, well, what is the heat of vaporization of that fluid and the temperature at which it will change phase? So it's not going to operate and do any of its heat transfer unless it's at that temperature. So if you have a component that's relatively cool, it may not really get the heat pipe going. This is a challenge with passive components like heat pipes is if the operating conditions are a bit different than what you design them to be, they're not going to work that well. So the cool thing about them is they don't have moving parts. They're not prone to failure if the operating conditions are what you thought they were, but they're designed for a very specific thermal equilibrium, as you mentioned. So that's a passive system. And then you said that they're also active yes. systems. So active systems are kind of like the big guns. You would rely on them sort of after exhausting passive options. So if, again, there's some uncertainty in the operating conditions or there's basically a need for cooling that's beyond what you can get from a passive cycle. So the radiator can really only get rid of heat to a certain efficiency from just, you know, being passively transported. So things like cryocoolers, even pump fluid loops to get the heat to the radiator, this is any system or component that requires power. There's often moving parts. So there might be like a cryocooler has a piston moving around. There might be, you know, failure potential at the pump level at whatever cycle you're using for cooling, for example, like a Stirling cycle and a lot of cryocoolers. So there's a lot of potential for failure just because there's more mechanisms that maybe aren't operating because that's their nature, but rather because you're forcing them <laughs> to operate in a certain way. So there's always a risk, but people design around this problem, having multiple 
backup plans. But that's really like how you can achieve temperatures. Like again, on the James Webb, there are components that need to be five, six Kelvin. So you're never going to get that with passive cooling from a radiator. You need a cryocooler. So just a few degrees above absolute zero. With that kind of system, of course, the cryocooler or the other mechanisms are working hard, right? And they're also generating heat of yeah. their own, not to mention vibration, which is a whole other right. problem. But I guess at the end of the day, you hope that this active system is going to reject more heat than it's causing, exactly. so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it had better do that. It better do that. Yeah, that's that's the key. So there's also just insulation that needs to take place. And usually these cryocoolers work in parallel. You know, one does a little bit, then the next one takes it all the way so that it's, you know, not all... Not a lot of effort coming from one unit, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me, the work of the thermal engineers on you know, actual mission design, because not only they have to work in these constraints of, oh, let's make sure not to introduce vibration and excess heat, but also within the constraints of all the other subsystems. So they're constantly negotiating mass with these other teams, trying to really narrow in on temperature range and basically potential space that they have for everything that they have to get done. So my experience with thermal engineering, if you call it that, at NASA was actually working on heat shield materials. So I was still in grad school doing my PhD and I was actually working in a completely different field. I was working in combustion and very serendipitously, the combustion technology I was working with involved porous materials. And so it turned out that those skills were useful for heat shield design. So I got this internship at NASA and that's really where a lot of this even started for me because I didn't have the consciousness of that this is a problem out there until that experience. But I wasn't specifically, you know, working on a mission. It was more developing a software tool and simulation capabilities to look at specifically radiative heat transfer for heat shields, but kind of connected to a lot of different things for heat shield modeling. What do you imagine those heat shields were meant to be used for? So I worked on a material called PICA, so phenolic impregnated carbon ablator. <laughs> Got that right? <laughs> It's basically a fibrous, porous material that gets impregnated with this phenolic resin. And it's one of the different strategies for keeping spacecraft cool during atmospheric entry or re-entry. So it's sort of a different train of thought than these other technologies that we were just discussing. You know, heat pipes and pump fluid loops and radiators, these are all things that help keep spacecraft at the right temperature during a mission. It could be a very long period, years, months, whatever. Whereas thermal protection systems or these heat shields are basically just for a couple minutes, are often sacrificial materials, so they ablate away. They can also be insulative, but their really main function is to keep everything safe during the few minutes of atmospheric entry. So I forget what you asked to even get me on this train of thought, but hopefully it tied back. I think that was great. I was going to ask just one more question about the heat shield. Could you explain what the utility of the PICA material oh, yeah, the is, PICA. why it's so good? Yeah, so PICA is what was used for Mars 2020 and uh, many other missions. A variation of it is used on the Dragon capsule, so SpaceX is making, I think they call it PICA-X. It's a very similar technology but what these materials do is PICA and other ablators, they're able to 
provide additional cooling as what just a porous material would provide. So looking around this room, there's lots of these porous foams. So these are insulating us from a sound perspective, but also they would do the same thing for heat, right? So they're this very porous structure that limits heat transfer across that plane. Ablators do an additional step of chemically reacting when they're heated up. So for really hot, high-velocity entry profiles, we need additional cooling besides just insulating. And the example I always give in my class is think about like meteors and, and all the space debris that enters our atmosphere. Thankfully, they get bladed. <laughs> Otherwise, they would kind of like fall on your head. So we have this atmosphere that, you know, as things move quickly through them, they get heated up and that process pyrolyzes that solid material. So that's what would happen to our spacecraft, depending on kind of the, the velocity, obviously. But what these ablators do is be the sacrificial material that does the ablating in kind of an engineered way. They're only probably a millimeter, a couple millimeters, and it's not like a thick material either. But for a lot of the missions that I'm familiar with, they're thin materials that pyrolyze, and then that pyrolysis gas that's emitted additionally cools that local environment. So you're able to kind of survive pretty intense entry profiles, like the, they called it the seven minutes of hell entering Mars atmosphere. So things like that, where PICA and other ablators are kind of necessary. Let me ask again about the ablation process. So as the heat shield recedes, that recession rate, it happens at a certain speed. Clearly, you can't go on forever because you know, you'd, you'd just burn up everything that's there. But you know, presumably after some point, you reach the lowest part of the atmosphere where it's not going to be heating up significantly. But as it heats up, I think I heard you say two things. One of them is the material itself just goes away, so it gets hot, but then it mechanically goes away, just disappears from the spacecraft, and presumably carries some of the heat that it absorbed with it as it goes. Mm -hmm. And then you also talked about a gas mm -hmm. that's produced. Are you saying that that gas has a uh, convective heat transfer effect, like it blows off the surface, or is it also a chemical reaction of some kind, maybe some kind of I don't know, endothermic reaction? Does that happen? Yeah, so it, this is like a very complex multi-physics problem that at least I know researchers at NASA Ames are working on. Well, we're expecting you to solve the problem in about two sentences right. here, so <laughs> feel free. I think the gist of it is the material gets hot and it initiates this chemical conversion. And obviously there's like what's left over, which is the char that you're talking about that will just kind of fall off. But I think the the core cooling is coming from the gases that it's converted to. And those gases kind of enter the boundary layer on are exactly convectively cooling that local environment. So it's providing this additional physical mechanism for keeping the local temperature cool, with the goal being that you don't want that recession to happen too far into the material, obviously. The bond line of that ablator to the spacecraft is, you know, glued on. So designing so that it's insulated from that bond line and also the the ablation happens kind of far away from anything that is close to the spacecraft and that bond line. That seems like a hard problem to predict, right? So is your software that you were working on at Ames meant to predict some of that? Exactly, yeah. And they're still working on it and they're doing really amazing work. I did, you know, one piece of that puzzle. The team there, I think, is focused in different areas. So one part of the group works on actually predicting the post-shock environment, so doing hypersonic simulations and figuring out, okay, depending on this profile and this 
shape of the spacecraft, you know, what do we expect to be the temperature, but also the composition of the gas coming to our heat shield. So these are ionized gases, they're kind of nasty to deal with. So that's kind of on one side, and then the other side focuses on the heat shield. So they take everything that that other team is doing as the boundary condition and says, okay, this is the temperature and, and the composition that is going to interact with the heat shield. Can we simulate what kind of ablation or pyrolysis we expect? And then, you know, a key part of this is also just ArcJet testing. So also at Ames, they have the ArcJet facility, PICA, and any other proposed heat shield material is tested in space relevant conditions and that recession rate is measured. So I think kind of part of the work is trying to get the models to align with those experiments. What's an ArcJet test? I can explain how an ArcJet <laughs> yeah, works if you why want. Don't you explain? <laughs> we talk about it in my propulsion class. An ArcJet is a relatively high flow rate electropropulsion device and it creates a plasma flow, high velocity with any gas that you want to run through it. So it makes sense. I mean, I didn't realize, but it makes sense that they would use it for this application. So they can probably recreate the conditions of the high velocity atmospheric plasma that the, you know, your reentry vehicle is experiencing. So I'm guessing, you know, you flow some mixture of nitrogen and oxygen, whatever is representative of the atmosphere at those conditions. And to the point of how it actually works. It's, it's really cool. It's kind of like an arc welder, which also probably not that many people interact with on a day-to-day, but it's a more like earth-based implementation. You basically create a sustained electric arc and you flow gas around that. So those things are like coupled because the gas that's flowing is the medium through which the arc is sustained, just kind of like a lightning bolt that we're say sustained through our atmosphere because you're constantly putting power into it. And these things are pretty power hungry. So they typically operate, it may, it may be several kilowatts, which is on the scale of the amount of power that we would use for like a house, actually. So they're usually pretty powerful. I mean, I don't know. It would probably depend on the the test section that you're designing for. But that's a really neat application of the ArcJet. I'm glad to learn more about how it worked. (laughs) We we were just kind of, I think I toured it once. It's such an impressive facility. But all I know is that they measure the recession rates from that hot plasma that you said is generated. And it's basically an arc in a converging, diverging nozzle. So then you get supersonic Mm. flow. I was also wondering if we could just dig into the chemistry a little bit, like very minor treatment of the chemistry. So if you have, is it mostly nitrogen and oxygen coming in? And then are those reacting with the carbon? Is that yeah. like the chemistry that's Yeah, occurring? exactly. It's the oxidizing of the carbon, you know, phenolic and pregnant carbon of later. So the carbon is the, the what is the fiber. So that is what's going to do the conversion, the okay. oxidizing. Yeah. Okay, great. And then the products would be like CO, CO2. Exactly. Do we have any measurements of an actual entering heat shield that we could use to verify or validate your software? Yes, definitely. That's a big part of it. I know at least on Stardust, which is old, but I think maybe MSL even, there were thermocouples and the heat shield, you know, once you have the what's remaining. But I think, you know, from what I remember, it's often hard to get the sort of sensors you need embedded in the heat shields because they can be failure points, right? So if you're going to have a heat shield that you're saying, okay, it's protecting the spacecraft from really high temperatures and really extreme environments, and then you poke a hole in it, (laughs) you put a thermocouple, well, it's kind of like, hey, that could be a point of potentially introducing catastrophic amounts of heat. Obviously, there has to be some care in how to embed these sensors, but I know that that's definitely been done before and used for 
validating these models. So MSL is the Mars Science Lab, which part of that was the Curiosity rover, right? right? So from 10 years ago at this point, mm -hmm. those recession rate measurements, I take it, were able to reduce the conservatism in the modeling yeah. by several factors, right. two or three or something, compared to the first time it happened during Viking, mm -hmm. which was in the 70s. And the cool thing I remember about that is that you had to get it right and to eliminate the risk of all the things we didn't know coming back to bite us for Viking, we just had to put way, way more heat shield materials. Now, with the precision that comes from not just testing, but also careful analysis of the mm -hmm. type that you're doing, we can be less conservative in the design of the heat shield, which gives you more mass for payload and for science and rovers and for cameras and all right. the things that you care about. Yeah, well said, exactly. Thinking about Mars, do you know if they design the heat shields with a different material for a different chemistry based on the atmosphere having a different composition, or is it close enough? I don't think so, but I think that's the kind of direction they're heading is to kind of enable, just by understanding even heat transfer in porous materials, that's a fundamental science, that it would enable the design of heat shields as opposed to just kind of using legacy materials that we know work well in known environments to really optimize and save even more mass and improve yeah. performance even better. And think about like Titan, then you have a, an atmosphere of methane and right. ethane that you could combust with, yeah. I would imagine. Right. I have actually one more question about the heat shield, but I know this isn't like your main area of work, <laughs> so I mean, we can go back to the yeah. other projects, or at least your main area of work now. I was just thinking about that bond between mm -hmm. the heat shield material and the rest of the spacecraft. Seems like it could be a sensitive or failure point. Mm -hmm. Do you know if anyone is working on ways to use additive manufacturing to kind of more gradually make that connection, or yeah. is it just not really a concern? Whether or not the integrity of that heat shield bond is relevant or not, I'm not sure that might have been, that may be a solved problem, but definitely the labor required to install the heat shield has always been of concern. Some heat shield materials more than others required thousands of hours of just someone filling each pore with the right material and sort of in different parts of the spacecraft, it needs different maybe density or filling amounts. So there's actually a company that I recently came across. They're called Canopy Aerospace, and I think their vision is exactly what you're describing of bringing additive manufacturing and other innovative manufacturing capabilities, not only to improve the labor intensity, but also the supply chain. So they've identified that with all of these space companies coming online, that they all are all going to need thermal protection systems, right? There's like one company apparently making Pika and they're kind of not doing it anymore or something like this. And there's this huge gap now for manufacturing at the scales that will soon be needed. So they're, I think, one of one company, at least that I know of, there's probably others who are realizing that this is a need. So I know you're the recipient of a NASA award for a project called ADVECT, and I think the ad is for additive manufacturing. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in the space of additive manufacturing for thermal yeah. control? Absolutely. So ADVECT focuses on ceramic additive manufacturing, specifically for thermal control technologies. So we're looking to 3D print heat pipes embedded in radiator, pump fluid loop, heat exchanger, the whole suite. So the idea of using additive manufacturing for thermal control systems really is motivated by seamless integration of all these different parts instead of having to figure out ways to connect them and have proper thermal contact. 
they're all made out of the same material and manufactured with those bonds taken into account that, that we could improve efficiency and, and performance. Specifically for us, we're looking at doing this with ceramic. There are other groups doing very similar work with metals, but the motivation for moving to ceramics is twofold. One is ceramics tend to be more compatible, you know, higher temperatures, more corrosive fluids, more corrosive environments. They are typically more durable in those conditions and also the densities. So for those kinds of performance gains, you don't sacrifice mass. They're low density materials typically that have all of those nice properties at extreme conditions. So we're looking for creating ceramic added manufacturing feedstocks, materials, and processes for enabling all those technologies. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the process of ceramic added manufacturing? Is it the same processes as metals or plastics? You don't get a spool of it, right, and, and melt it onto the surface? Right. Work that way? Okay. <laughs> no, not yet, but that's a good idea. Maybe we can make a spool of ceramic. There are different strategies for ceramic AM. It's a, it's relatively a newer field than some of the other materials, like polymer, obviously, and metal. The technology that we apply is using light photopolymerization. So, so we use a photosensitive resin that the ceramic particles are suspended in, and we selectively cure that resin. And okay, so, so you shine a light on it, exactly. and that uh, hardens the resin that surrounds the ceramic particles. Exactly. So it's really a composite of polymer and ceramic that gets printed. And then the challenge becomes how to densify it and get rid of that polymer very, you know, pyrolysis and uh, high temperature process uh, depends on the chemistry of the resin. But eventually we remove the resin and center together the ceramic particles to make a fully densified final ceramic part. Can you define center? Yeah. So in our case, we just use high temperature. You can also use pressure. But the, the idea at that stage is to take these discrete ceramic particles and fuse them into one cohesive material. So you could do that with just high temperature. And in our case, we don't melt anything, but we do overcome those surface energies of those particles. You could also melt it. You could also use pressure. We also put additives in our slurry to promote that interface energy process. So when you center something together, you're taking a heat source. Maybe it's a laser. Maybe it's some other heating element. And you put it close enough to the part that you want to try to center together and make it solid that you'll you'll fuse the particles. Right. So that's actually another approach to just directly printing ceramics is to use a laser. But with our process, since we print everything with, you know, polymer, we put this whole structure in a furnace and heat up the whole furnace. And then the design comes from what kind of furnace, how hot should it get, and what operating environment does it need. So if you're Sintering an oxide ceramic or non-oxide, obviously non-oxides are not going to want to be at high temperature in an oxygen environment. So we have to have a proper furnace that is in an inert environment. So there's, you know, some variation in furnaces, but at the end of the day, yeah, we're just heating it up and causing those particles to coalesce. So you bake it and that burns off or maybe sublimates the resin and the polymer and so forth. I guess that would mean that the shape is going to change or the size is going to change, right? How, how much of an effect is that? Yeah, so that's one of the unique things about the additively manufactured ceramics. There's even conventionally made ceramics often involve some kind of binder if you want to create a shape out of them. 
but in the additive space, we use a lot of binder because we need to initiate that photopolymerization, that shining of the light and solidification process. So it can be 50%, 60% binder that you have to get rid of. And so for some of our materials, we see like a 30, 35% shrinkage. That can be different in the layer direction versus not, but as long as it's reproducible, we can just change the input STL, like the input CAD design to accommodate whatever shrinkage. You just start big and it ends up smaller. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Big or kind of scaled in one direction mm-hmm. versus the other direction. The challenge is when you're trying to develop a new material and it's sintering differently and it's still not at that reproducible stage where it's hard to kind of have a very precise measurement on your final part. So are there some problems that you keep in mind when you're pursuing this research? I mean, let's say ideally a spacecraft problem given the nature of our (laughs) podcast here, but I mean, is there something that motivates your research? Are you heading towards something? Yeah, so in this context, in this work, I think there is a gap specifically in heat pipes in this mid-temperature regime. So if you have really hot heat pipes, there are you know certain materials and, and fluids that are suitable, and then low temperatures, water is sort of the best working fluid, and various metals are well-suited. For ceramics and also some of the novel working fluids, they're trying to fill this gap in this mid-temperature regime, so like 400 Kelvin to 700 Kelvin. There aren't good working fluids. There's been no studies done on compatibility of some of the proposed working fluids with metals or ceramics. So some of our work is, you know, to fill this gap and understand how do these fluids and and materials, proposed materials, interact, and can we kind of create a technology for this intermediate temperature range. Also, as I mentioned, the ceramics are good at, you know, very high temperatures as well, so they could potentially be a lower density alternative to some of the metal high temperature heat pipes. So it sounds like in the AdBag project, you're working a lot on the material and, you know, compatibility with different working fluids. But I know you also have another NASA sponsored project to develop the working fluids themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, that's a project that we're just starting off actually this month. But the idea there is to develop new heat transfer fluids for spacecraft thermal management. And specifically, we're targeting ionic liquids for pumped fluid loops. The challenge there is for certain operating conditions where you know water might freeze or another working fluid might be too hazardous or you know whatever other constraints that they require, a working fluid that has all of the beautiful rheology and viscosity and and specific heat of water without it ever freezing. So that's kind of the, the, the challenge that was posed to the community and that our group is undertaking is to design ionic liquids with specific pairings of anions and cations or even combinations of ionic liquids that we think would have what our NASA collaborator calls unicorn blood <laughs> type <laughs> properties. Well, well, what, what is an ionic liquid if, if not silvery blood of some sort? Maybe Elaine can comment okay, on this. Yeah, I'd love to talk about ionic liquids. We've been using them in our research for a couple of years, so I think you can see that they have applications in many fields. So you could think about like salt water or something as conductive fluid, but here with the ionic liquid, your carriers of charge are the molecules themselves. So it's not like a solution where you've mixed some salt that will then break up into its like cation positive charge and anion negative charge. Instead, now chemists have synthesized these fluids that are pure salts. They're relatively complex, large, 
molecules that carry a charge and the fluid overall will be charged balanced. So I would imagine from a thermal control perspective, like the more atoms you have in your molecule to absorb energy and like have some, you know, vibrational motion that can absorb heat that could help with your specific heat capacity of the liquid. And then also the interactions of the molecules make it so that you can tailor, you know, based on their shape and their molecular interactions that they don't boil easily and they don't condense easily. Exactly. Yeah. So, and the, and the challenge for us is, you know, there are so many options for the anion cation pairing. So there's, you know, I think 10 to the eight possible ionic liquids. So in the context of heat transfer fluid discovery, obviously it's not feasible to try all of them and see which one has the right thermal physical properties for thermal management applications. So this is where we're proposing to use machine learning and sort of train our our model based on what is available, the data that is available, and uh, some additional data that we'll have to collect to try to understand some of those trends that you're talking about. How do these different anion-cation pairings interact and create the kind of final properties such as, you know, we're really targeting viscosity and freezing point, but there's a, a large suite of operating points that we have to target. So I just have to ask, how do you know that there's 100 million different ionic liquids? Just based on the number of known cation anion permutations oh, that you could have. Okay. <laughs> I believe you. I'd say like, you know, we come across spreadsheets or in our field, some of our PhD students are creating their own spreadsheets and they'll have a few, you know, tabs full of ionic yeah. liquids, like 100, right. hundreds per tab. And these are just so. like the ones someone has actually synthesized in the lab and, and decided to test. Have you found that the information that you need about them has been discovered or how accessible is the property? Something that's been interesting to us just in the short period that we've undertaken the project is that so much of the literature is about the ionic conductivity because that's the main application and no one really cares that much about the conductivity of the fluid or the heat capacity of the fluid so that data is often missing specifically for the temperature, the vast temperature range that we're interested in. So maybe it's known at room temperature, but not, you know, at cryogenic temperatures. So, you know, we're continuously trying to gather that data now and, and see if we can have a thermal angle to it that we can contribute. Well, what is a typical thermal range that you'd expect for a ionic liquid or that you'd hope for maybe? You mean in terms of temperature range that it could yeah. work in? Maybe I think the call that we're aiming for satisfying is 150 Kelvin to 450 Kelvin. But I think anything better than the freezing point of water is good. Right. <laughs> Do you think that there's commercial implications here? I mean, would this be an antifreeze for the car if you could make it work? Yeah, it definitely. I think even there might be some fluids out there that might be suitable. It's just that they're going to be hazardous and, and you don't want them on a crewed mission. So there's several criterias. Not only it has to have the right thermophysical properties, but also toxicity. And are you confident that there are non-toxic ionic liquids out there? I'm confident that we'll find something that pushes the state of the art, whether or not it meets all of the criteria. I mean, they're, they're ambitious, so let's see. Yeah, you've, you've got one chance in a hundred million to get it right, so that doesn't seem hard. We don't have to put this on the podcast, but I'll add that our lab is like right now testing the compatibility of ionic liquids with a biomaterial. So we could take cells or amino acids of things that make up our body and put them in with the ionic we can. Well, we're kind of gaining some insight now, and okay. we have like a, a certain reason that we're doing this. It's not propulsion related, um, but so if you come up with your 
ideal ionic liquid. We can, is that to see, like, is it toxic? or? Well, it's actually, that's, that's not why we started it, but I think it will reveal some, you could probably make some conclusions about the toxicity because yeah. we'll be able to understand how the ionic liquid reacts with even large biomolecules, but things as small as, like, amino acids. If it doesn't interact well, then that ionic liquid's probably not safe. Right, <laughs> but the thing about them is the conditions that you're designing for, they're not volatile. So as long as you don't ingest them or right. like come into contact with them, they're more safe in right. that respect. Yeah. And the other thing I forgot to mention is there are external pump fluid loops that, you know, this could still have application even if we find that it has some toxicity the way that ammonia is used today. It's not used internally at all because if that leaks, that's no good. So Well, that's just it. It would seem like you already have a line in the sand if you can find an ionic liquid that's no more toxic than ammonia. Yeah. It feels like you're in business. Exactly. You mentioned that during your time in graduate school, you were a postdoc at NASA Ames. Can you talk to us about what you researched in graduate school and your path to getting there? Yeah. I think I mentioned I worked in combustion, so that also was just very serendipitous. I was working in a lab just because I wanted to gain experience in a lab as an undergrad, and then I ended up just really clicking with the project and the team and asked if I could stay on as a PhD student. That's sort of how that went. And, you know, probably I think it was in my third year or fourth year, I came across this internship opportunity at NASA Ames, which was just down the street from Stanford, where I was studying. And at the time, I had a very, very focused research agenda, just looking at how flames interact with porous structures. And, you know, that interplay between the chemistry and the material properties and the material topology, a lot of that work, which I continue today. But, you know, like from the first day at my internship, I realized while wow, there's so much more that I could apply this knowledge to, because as you know, we talked a lot about heat shields are also porous materials with heat transfer, with chemistry. They're also matter. Their performance matters on what kind of topology that porous structure takes, the chemistry of of it all, heat release from that you know chemical kinetic process. So things just started clicking for me in a very grandiose way <laughs> it was like wow this is everywhere my expertise isn't as niche as I thought and there could be a career for me here so that really inspired me and thankfully I could stay on past my internship so during my PhD I was kind of working in both places both in my lab and at Ames so I could continue contributing to these codes and kind of the heat shield design part of the story so when I graduated and, and or, you know, was planning to graduate in the upcoming months, I was applying for faculty positions. And one of the things you have to do is write a research statement. And that was, I think, where all the soul searching happened, <laughs> was having to write everything in, I think, two pages or three pages. And so I think I had to do these very quickly for various reasons and um, just sat down and thought, okay, what are really important world challenges that we'll be facing in my lifetime? that I could be a part of. And one of them was space exploration. And I felt like I just really wanted to be part of that global conversation in the way that I could contribute, which was thermal management. So that ended up being part of my research portfolio and continues to be today. 
I mean, speaking of unicorns, and you used that phrase before, I guess I would say I, I, we feel extraordinarily fortunate that you are here on our faculty. Among the many interesting things you do is spacecraft thermal analysis and engineering and management. And, and these these problems are, are kind of rare in the academic world. I mean, do you find that there's a community of like-minded people that you interact with? Yeah, it's it's hard to gauge because I'm also new to the community, but I'm also realizing that, as you say, that this the problems and these questions have often been focused on primarily in the NASA community or the space agency communities, not so much uh, in academia. So, but I do sense a change, especially with the recent initiatives from NASA, you know, these early stage innovation awards, there have been several going to people developing new radiators and thermal control systems the Early Career Faculty Award, you know, the fact that that was for spacecraft thermal control, I think that's that's unique. So there's definitely an understanding and a push towards this you know, need for fundamental understanding of some of these thermal problems that's relevant for spacecraft. Can you think of any mentorship experiences that you had, people who had a big impact on the path you took? Mason, the tough questions... <laughs> Uh, many people. Um, I mean, one, my research advisor. Obviously, I came in very much not conscious of what research was. I was just curious. I was just a very curious student. And anything that was scientific and challenging, I was just on board. <laughs> so I'm sure that wasn't easy to train me to actually be productive graduate students. <laughs> yeah, that's really where like the story started. And then of course, my mentor at Ames, Naji Mansour, he was really instrumental in any of this ambition towards space technologies. Because one, he had put together an amazing team of people that inspired me, and he had this amazing career in the field. So, so you mentioned, you know, are there like-minded people? So he was one of them who was thinking about the world the way I was thinking about it. There's material questions we can control, you know, heat transport with how we design structures and if we do that properly we can impact you know space exploration those things all connected that that was really for someone like me very impactful did you take any lessons from those mentorship experiences that you try to implement with your own students i think one of them is letting students make mistakes and and do things independently so you know just yesterday or monday we were meeting a deadline for some conference and, you know, I remembered like just that philosophy really coming in, you know, people writing things in, in a way that I wouldn't write it <laughs> or, you know, some people decided to submit a couple of days early and I thought I would never do that. I would wait till the last second to, you know, improve the paper, but just letting students make their own choices and, and the experience of being able to think independently allowed me to form my own vision and as you know, maybe you alluded to, it's sort of maybe unique in the way that I think about connecting all these different fields. And I want to give that to students as well. I think of them as they're already scientists. They're already my peers. I'm just responsible for helping them get the training they need to kind of get all the skills they need to have that independent career. Thankfully, I was afforded those things myself. For the maybe undergraduate or new master's students that are at our universities or other universities and are hoping to work on space technology, maybe thermal management, do you have any advice for them for how to get involved? So taking, you know, courses in heat transfer, thermodynamics, 
interestingly, material science is going to be a big factor in all of this as well. I think with any advice I would give an engineering student is try to understand the fundamentals well, and then the doors that opens for you are limitless. I think the recent five years, maybe longer, and I just wasn't aware, I have really come to appreciate online content creators and how much they have illuminated space technology for the world. So really just connecting with different, you know, YouTubers and and online content creators that are giving us insights. For example, there's, his name is the Everyday Astronaut, Tim Todd, and he goes and interviews Elon Musk and he's showing us starship from close up and these sorts of insights that I think, you know, students from my generation, we never had. So I think just engage with that community and utilize all of those incredible resources to really appreciate everything that's going on and then choose the thing that's resonating with you the most. Different things drive people in their careers. You know, I mean, there's a desire maybe for personal satisfaction or accomplishment or renown or something like that. Other folks think about there's a problem out there that I want to solve because it feels like it's going to help people. Sometimes it's you've seen something bad happen and you want to correct it. Can you think of specifically any spacecraft failures that originated with a thermal problem? I mean, can that be a motivating example of an object lesson for students? Well, there's the example people always give with the shuttle Columbia that catastrophically failed and led to the loss of seven astronauts. So, that I mean, that's a big motivator is, is just helping you appreciate this is very important in the safety of everything. It's not just to improve performance and have a little bit more mass for a payload. It's, it's actually mission critical. I think the other yeah, way to think about it, though, is that as we are more ambitious with the destinations we want to go, we can't keep relying on the technologies that we have. So I think that's motivating to say, okay, if we want to go to these deep space missions and, and be successful, understanding and engineering for thermal management of the spacecraft will be just as integral to that process as all the other subcomponents. I'm impressed with Sadaf's work for a number of reasons. One of them is that it brings together some surprisingly disparate fields of research, such as 3D printing or material science, in connection with thermodynamics. Yeah, and there's even more fields than that. So she talked about designing new working fluids as coolants. So then there's a need to understand the chemistry of those fluids and how it might interact with the different materials and the rest of the cooling system, and uh, even orbital mechanics and understanding the heat fluxes to the spacecraft. So I guess there's still a lot of open questions out there, but we're making progress on some really hard thermal problems. And since thermal is so central to the healthy functioning of a spacecraft, these problems need attention. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what kind of new capabilities this opens up for us on orbit. Mason Peck is a Stephen J. Fujikawa Professor of Astronautics at Cornell University. Elaine Petro is an Assistant Professor in Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Spaceflight Mechanics is recorded at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with funding from the Sibley School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Our sound engineer and editor is Claire Peck, with music by Cosmoptera. Cosmoptera.